somewhere between waking and sleeping. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world, and the other is in that other world, where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here, and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door, only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness, venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 13 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a weekly podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host, Seymour Jacklin. Visit bordersofsleep.com for some more information or to leave some feedback. Artwork is by Robin Trainer, production by Tim Wiles, and the soundtrack for this week's episode is from the album Seraphim by David Modica, and it's available from magnatune.com. This podcast is also available on iTunes. So, if you are ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. Between Two Tides by Seymour Jacklin I was found on a beach ten years ago. People have often asked me how I came to be there, and I've remembered a few fragments of what came before. People also describe me as young but credit me with wisdom that suggests many more years of experience than my face shows. The whole village turned out to watch as they brought my limp body up from the shore, barely covered with the remains of the loose black breeches and white chemise that I was found in. They've been good to me, these people. But I sometimes wish that they had left me there, face down in the shelly sand. Perhaps, in death, I could have dreamt on of my own people and our citadel in the sea. They think me sad, as one so young to take refuge in memories, but they do not know what I dream about. Come, I think we should go and look out over the cliffs. The tide will be going out, and all the fantastic shapes of the rocks will be exposed. Sculpted rocks and the sea washing in and out are the only things in this world which are the same as the place from which I came. Yes, I think I would die if I were ever taken away from the smell of the sea or the sound of it. Oh, rocks, sand, waves, they brace me against the years and I feel as if it was yesterday. Let us sit down here, for it is on a cliff top that my story begins. For as long as I can remember before the time that I am going to tell you about, my people lived among the rock pools on a cliff top which overlooked the ocean. It was in a place where a broad and a very shallow river came and tipped over the cliffs in a huge waterfall that we could never see for it was always underneath us. Near the edge the water would surge and rush suddenly dividing into sucking streams which plunged between the rocks on the cliff edge, broke over and disappeared. Yet further up the river it was slower flowing over and between boulders and feeding still pools which we would swim in, and from which we took crabs and seaweed for food. As we grew older, boys and girls alike would swim in the pools and streams nearer and nearer to the edge of the cliff, fighting the accelerating current, delighting in the danger and in the thunder of the falls below us. 
Even so, we were in the very infancy of our race at that time, naked, a little foolish, little knowing that as we grew as a people, we were to be drawn beyond the limits of this happy world to swim in still deeper waters. In those deeper pools near to the edge of the falls there lived some dangerous creatures too. Crabs and snails which would have eaten us, and fearful alligators sometimes hungry enough to chase us. You may well imagine what this habitat was like, but I have stranger things to tell which will require a full application of your imagination. For a start, the alligators were more than a hungry predator, they were evil and they spoke our language. We feared them more for their taunts than their teeth. They would laugh at us as we played in the pools, sometimes mocking us and chasing us towards the edge of the falls, and then chuckling hideously as we scrambled out onto a boulder and clung to one another in childish terror. Their aim always seemed to be to instill a terror of the edge to dissuade us from investigating further. They mocked our weaknesses as swimmers, for their powerful tails could fight the current right up to the edge of the falls. Nevertheless, our people came closer to the edge. Over time we would dive deeper and swim stronger and evade the alligators with cunning. The rumble of water tumbling over and over became louder and my people were growing up. I always had a sense of the destiny of our race. The old ones among us, whose hair was long and grey, and whose skin was wrinkled at the joints like the armour of a crab. They would speak of prophecies concerning us. But, of all my generation, I think I was the only one who truly sensed our destiny, or who could read the times in which we lived, and understand when the prophecies were to come to pass. I remember a day when we, the youth, playing and foraging closer to the edge than ever before, came to look out over it. One of our number had swum over to a rock right on the very edge of the cliffs, and we saw his glistening body leaping up and down and waving for us to come over to him. We slipped into the water and fought our way through the current with hearts pounding. The water had begun to pile up and fold over itself as it came to the lip of the falls. I could feel the bubbles forming with greater intensity over my head, I could hear the subaqueous thunder of water against the rocks, and either side of me I could see the white gleaming bodies of my peers underwater. Boys and girls. There was always a difference in the way we swam. The boys would buffet at the current with their heads and chests, while the girls would somehow cut through it and slip between the speeding streams. We clambered out onto the rock, gasping with the effort of the swim, blinking in the full sunlight. The sound of the falls was louder than ever, and a little spray rose off the brink and blew back onto the rock, wetting it. By the time I had steadied myself, many of my companions were lying on their bellies, looking out over the precipice. We were awed. There was no laughter and splashing. I don't think we even breathed. There was the ocean, huge and breathing against the base of the cliff. The cascades either side of us crashed down with a terrifying effect of making us feel as if we were shooting upwards at speed. The falls hit the sea with a deep white thrust of bubbles which shot upwards and outwards from the base of the cliffs. You could look at the falls as a blurry, awesome hole, 
or take them in in mesmerising detail, watching where a single string of droplets came too close to the cliff and bounced out against some ledge again like a water spout. We were very young. We knew for the first time how the steady pulse of our slow maturing could speed hysterically in the face of a sense of destiny. We grew up by decades in those moments on that cliff top. To be in the presence of something so awesome and beyond imagining changes our fundamental being forever. After that, we just laughed at the alligators and even felt a little sorry for them. Before long, though, our people had actually moved to the brink. I'm glad you have this word brink in your language because it captures the essence of the place where we stood at that time. That wonderful sight became the backdrop to our lives. Yes, my people were growing strong. We laughed at alligators and we lived on the very edge of terror and beauty every day. The pools where we had dared to dive became our foraging places. The currents we had feared became our leisure. The dangerous creatures of those depths were laughable. There came a time when we lived right on the edge of those cliffs. And now I would say that my story rarely begins. As we'd come to live on the brink of the cliffs, the families were distributed along the edge, no longer dotted around as it had been upstream. It was then that I saw how many we were. I should say we were probably about a hundred of us at the time. I felt especially protective of the youngest ones, the children who were still rotundly innocent and seemed to be forever hungry. One day, a great shout went up. I don't know who began it, but as one people we looked towards the ocean as if we knew that the tide had changed once again in our history. Now look down here. Do you see how as the tide retreats it uncovers more and more of those rocks which run out to sea? Do you see that rock there? Is it not like the hull of a galleon lying on its side? And there, I fancy that rock is like the turret of a castle. And as the tide falls a little more, you'll see a hole which is like a great entranceway. This is a little like what we saw on that day. The sea was retreating, and the structures of rock beneath the waves were being successively uncovered. And that is the way that our citadel emerged from the sea. As I looked down, I could see the tops, the high places, the walkways that were being revealed, cut out of the solid rock, as natural as if they had been for ages under the sea, like that galleon rock over there. The first problem we encountered was how to get from the cliffs down onto the rocks below. It was some way, but narrow paths were revealed, and there were ledges and outcrops below us onto which we could leap. All my people were surging over every possible route. I'm saddened at this thought, for many lost their footing and fell onto the rocks, dying instantly. We were growing up as a people. Many died in that stupid scramble. I remember being gripped by a consuming will to survive and walk in the city that was coming out of the sea. Presently I found a ledge which jutted to within leaping distance of a huge rock which sloped down onto the beach that was becoming exposed at the base of the cliff. Someone was following me, the light form of one of the girls I'd grown up with. It may even have been my sister, although they were all my sisters really. For a moment I was angry with her for following me, but she made it seem like a game and we were sharing a secret discovery down in the rock pools of childhood. 
I think I was grateful for her presence. Surely I stepped down onto the ledge and then leapt across the gap, crouching momentarily on landing before standing up and checking to see that she was still behind me. As I clambered down the side of this rock, it proved to be extraordinary, a part of the city itself. I saw that it was in fact hollow. Glimpses through holes in the outside showed it to be full of galleries flooded with light. The light came through windows of mica lined above and below the galleries. I was climbing down the outside of a great building. At the seaward end, the waves were still washing in and out of the building but at each receding bout of the water more of the sandy floor was revealed. I was enchanted, but I couldn't find a hole large enough for me to enter by. Presently my feet felt sand for the first time, and I stood rejoicing on the beach. Before me, seawater was surging between the pillars of rock with their feet buried in wet sand and with the great ceilings of stone on their shoulders. Above them were the tunnels, rocky pinnacles, sturdy pillars and walkways of a city of many levels cut into the black stone by inhuman hands. It seemed as if the sea itself had carved it. The arches and galleries went on and on down the slope of the beach. All was lit greyly from above by the sky. There must have been darkness in that city. But my overwhelming impression is of a place open to the sky, like a cathedral with its roof torn off. My people were not made to shelter from the elements, but to be among them. Many of us were standing on the beach, looking up in awe at the deserted structure. There was a strange hiatus, as if they were waiting for a voice to call them up into the city. Some of them were wondering why they had risked their lives to stand closer to this immense creation from the ocean. Whatever trumpet had summoned us down had ceased to sound and we had no language to describe what we saw. What words would a people of pools, streams and boulders ever find for this citadel that had emerged from the sea? So we began, like children, to explore the city. But our very nature was changing as we walked its halls. I began to understand what it really meant for us to grow up. Everything changed. I seemed to instinctively understand the layout of the city, and I knew the times in which we lived. The change that came upon us was a differentiation of roles. As a hall differed from a gallery, and a walkway differed from a gathering place in the city, in a way that the rock pools had never differed, so also my people became segmented. As one walkway was higher than another, and the environment in which we lived consisted of depth as well as direction so also my people differentiated between one another. Others, like myself, who had an inner knowledge, rose among our peers and found office to judge and give advice. We became a ruling class. You could say that we became a civilization. We began to clothe ourselves according to our rank and roles in the city. I no longer fished, but others fished for me while I attended to the business of a ruler and a prophet. This change came about organically like a starfish moulding its form and clinging to many-shaped rocks, so my people responded to their new destiny. We were ever one people, and to lead was to serve. Natural giftings became the boundaries along which the people divided into roles and classes. When we entered into the city, it dawned upon the dullest among us that there was a higher power 
which had caused it to be created, and sent us to inhabit it. This same power gave me my understanding which caused me to rise in authority and respect. I was of great service to my people in the wisdom that I could dispense. I found it truly wonderful that I had been marked out to be such a one among my people. By and by we had rulers and governors, a class of people with a great deal of understanding and strength in their collective council, and yet there was not any one as yet to rule over us all. I felt this lack more keenly than anyone else, as it seemed I had been given the intuition to understand the next developmental stage in the growth of my people long before it took place. This was recognised, and I was frequently consulted in light of my gift. So I sought out a prince for my people. First it was given to us to understand that he would come from a certain family, a royal family, who would be found living in a certain place, as I predicted in the city. We found these people and gave over to them a part of the city more ornate and more complex than any other. It was formed in yellow sandstone unlike any other part of the city and the walls were encrusted with fossil shells of long dead sea creatures. And so the court came to be formed. My friends were the royal family, the judges and advisers in the assembly of the court and those who remained of the old ones. It was about this time that the old ones began to pass away. They were included at court, for they brought with them the wisdom of the boulders and the rock pools, and we accorded them the respect of our forefathers. As they died, we placed them in a sacred and holy place, located right at the heart of the court. This place did not only come to hold the bodies of our forefathers, but there was in the midst of it another reminder of our origins a still, dark pool, which was said to contain fresh, pure water, and its surface was never disturbed. One day, the prince appeared from among the royal family. He was presented to my people, a youth with great joy. He was my companion, and became my soulmate, and I was his principal servant and confidant. I discovered that my joy was to impart all I understood to him, for he was not well versed in the ways of the city and the people, yet he was to rule over us, and what a joy it was to all the court and to the people to have such a prince to adore. He was somewhat younger than me, and we were like two brothers. It was then that I learnt to tell long stories. <laughs> he would have loved to have splashed around in those rock pools of my childhood. Instead, we would go diving after seals, chasing their silver backs down, reaching after their fleeing forms. He often wondered aloud, do they think that we're going to eat them? Or do you think they know it's just a game? We never caught one, but it was good sport. I'm boring you, perhaps. Maybe it's just that you sense the grey skies and the black rocks of my world are not to your liking. Did you prefer the sunny infancy on the cliff-top habitat before we were truly men and women? We were a colourful people, you know, and the court was of wholesome people. Do you, like others of your kind, have a revulsion for civilization? Well, I've heard that you have cities, but I've never seen them. I should think I never would for the horror that crosses the faces of the villagers when I mention that word, a city. This is what makes it so hard for me among these lovely folk. 
They fear that for which my whole life was prepared. Well, perhaps I should tell you of the women of my people. I think it's with them that much of my heart rests. Let me tell you about the beauty of our women. And this is why I feel such an agony of wistfulness in my memories. I'm sure that there was one there whom I loved as a woman. Or perhaps it was simply that I loved those women and the manifestation of their womanhood, the form in which they appeared. Yes, perhaps that is it. To see any one of them would bring me such joy now. You must understand it's very difficult to live on having tasted such things and not to hope of returning to them. How can I put it? They wore simplicity, not just as a garment, but as an outlook. They were strong also, holding office and authority among us, and diving as deep for shellfish as any of the male divers. They would land a fish with grace, and seeing such a thing you would wonder which was the fish and which was the woman, as they were alike in kind. If the towers and buttresses of the citadel were us, the menfolk, then womankind was as the sea which surrounded and the sand which sounded faintly under the breakers. Oh, what memories I have of salty, sandy hair entwined with strings of shells, of skin smooth as a pebble yet pulsing with the blue-veined life of sea currents, glowing with the afterglow of an ocean sunset, bodies, driftwood, robust, yet driftwood delicate. Listen, is there not an emptiness in the sound of this shore? An emptiness that could only be filled with a song from a human throat. Such is the absence of the women of my kind. Look, the tide has turned and is coming back, so I must finish my story. The prince was mine, and I was his, and in this I was like no one else among my people. If it were at all possible, I could be described as being a law unto myself, since I carried within myself a knowledge of the secret things which instructed me, and saw that I did no wrong. I was esteemed in the eyes of everyone, for I was able to please everybody with timely words and correction, revealing the secret wisdom from the great store which grew in me day by day. I had nothing to fear from any man or beast. I was respected and trusted by all at court, but never adored as our prince was. The prince led his people in pageantry and rejoicing in the abundance of the sea. He decreed many festivals to remember the seasons by, and also to remember our origins and the destiny of our race to become a great civilization. His authority was limited, though, until he should come to maturity, and all the race would blossom under his kingship. Breathlessly the people watched him grow, knowing that in his coming of age would be the coming of age of our race. By then, it would be time for my abilities to grow less as others grew more. I was made for that present age, and his was the age still to come. I have told you how precious the women of our kind were, and it was understood that the prince would find a girl to be his princess. So he fell in love with a girl at court, a very playful woman who matched the prince in mirth and laughter. Oh, tragedy. Could he not have chosen one of more solemn disposition? Could he not have been balanced in his wife rather than being explosively matched by her irreverent gamesomeness? I will explain, for the prince confided this to me in such detail I almost feel as if I went through it all myself. Sorry, I must sigh here. 
feels like yesterday, was so intense and vivid. On the night that they were married, it had been decreed that the prince and his princess should spend their first night together in one of the rooms which adjoined the most sacred place where the bodies of the old ones rested. The wedding was simply a feast with no further ceremony than abandoned celebration, after which the princess would go to the room and the prince would follow her after certain duties to his parents and family had been dispensed. We celebrated all day in the great assembly hall of the court, a great structure open to the sky which held up to 300 people on a gently inclined series of steps that faced a raised stage at the bottom with thrones carved into the rocks and sitting alcoves carved in all the surrounding walls. My memory of that day is as of a blaze of colour, a magnificent sunset, and when the sun began to turn a deeper golden, the princess left and many of the court dispersed. As the sun reddened, I was the last to wish the prince a good night. We hugged each other very close like brothers until I pushed him away. Get away now, don't keep her waiting, were my last words to him. The shadows were deep as the prince made his way out of the hall, down a flight of stairs turning east towards the holy place. But where the sun hit the walls it seemed to paint them with colour and shade and the fossils were heavily embossed. This was the city in one of its most inspiring aspects. The prince entered the hushed holy place, and the breeze took hold of the hanging cloths and wiped them across his face and clothes. Suddenly a giggle broke out through the arches, and the prince flushed with delight, recognising the sound. He wanted to rush to her, but walked quietly on. He thought that he would make it a game. Again the laughter bubbled and stopped abruptly, muffled with a childish hand held over the mouth. Closer this time, somewhere to the south. He stopped and flattened himself against a pillar, drawing a few drapes of cloth over himself to hide. Then he saw her, a white slip of cloth catching at the last of the light, darting from the south to the north side of the holy place. He broke cover and sprinted after her, her giggles making it clear that she knew that he was in pursuit. Life bounded through him as if he had just dived after a seal, yet this one knew that it was a game and would let him win. She managed to stifle her laughter and slowed down, creeping from pillar to pillar, until he became confused by the movement of the cloth. He called out again and startled her to run again, east, down towards the far end of the holy place, laughing breathlessly. Her laughter burst in the air like a shoal of silvery fish turning unpredictably, dividing and reconvening, skimming towards him over the obsidian surface of the sacred pool that lay in the centre of the chamber. He stalked to the edge of the pool and crouched down like a stone, waiting for her to betray herself with another giggle. The pool was more still than the wave-gouged rocks that surrounded it, and yet somehow more alive. It was said to have a strange effect on all who looked into its inscrutable face. I knew it well, for we used it for divination. Still water held a great mystery for my people, for whom that element was always in motion. It was forbidden that anything should ever disturb this pond, this pool, not even the breath of those who looked into it. 
He suddenly caught sight of her reflection as she came up softly behind him, as if she was growing from his shoulders. She placed a hand on his shoulder, and he watched her face coming close to his side by side, and there, there was a sense of a third presence in the water, seeking to complete a triangle between them. The feeling compelled the prince to reach out and dip a fingertip in the pool. After all, if anyone had the right to touch it, it was him, the heir apparent to this watery kingdom. I do not know what passed between those three, her hand on his shoulder, his hand in the sacred pool. But in the morning, a priest found them lying there, on the brink, in the deepest sleep her arms around his neck, and him trailing an arm up to the elbow in the depths of its mystery. The next day, the court was assembled, as usual, for the administration of justice. In the high thrones at the end of the room were the judges and clerks. You will see that we took justice very seriously, as all matters of social importance. As usual, I walked among the courtiers who were assembled, laughing and joking with them. This was a privilege I enjoyed, not to have a fixed place to sit in court. We greeted each other formally, as we were not too familiar with one another during official assemblies. The caller stood up and began to call out the business of the day. Much was routine and formal, but we began to settle down respectfully. As I recall, I was wearing the black gown white chemise and black breeches which I normally wore on such occasions. The royal family all wore red and yellow. The priests were in blue and the court officials were dressed, much as I was. I was the last to seat myself, finding a place at the very front with the novice officials of the court who were in training. The sun was a quarter of its way up the morning ascent and it was pleasantly warm but I was suddenly aware that a cold silence had struck the court who leant forward as the caller prepared to announce a business of some gravity. Oh, I'm burning with shame to even think of what then had to take place. The prince was called to stand up, and I was stunned. Oh, my prophetic soul had seen nothing of this. (sighs) What followed I weep to tell you, for it was made known that the prince and the princess had disturbed the pool in the holy place, witnessed, I fear, not only by the dead, but also by the priest who found them. Why had I not seen this before it happened? Oh, of course. It was just in his nature to do something like this. But what a shame, and he was guilty, very guilty. The prince was ordered to be executed by dashing on the rocks. Believe me, that is the deepest shame, to be killed in the same way as those of my people who were foolish on the day when the city rose out of the sea. Oh, my beloved prince, you were so very young. You would call us brutal, I know. But I want you to understand that this could not be brutality. It was justice. Oh, if you can't understand anything I've said, please understand this. It was righteous that this terrible mistake should be punished. 
I speak of a justice that was muscular, physical, you see, firm as the rocks in which we lived. As a sharp crag divides the wind to the right and the left of it, so was our justice to divide right from wrong. Let me assure you that upon the prince's face as he stepped forward was the same expression as that upon the judge's. It was a look of justice, unflinching as one who faces what he deserves. Yes, I was proud of him in that moment, for I knew that he had grown so much to be able to wear such an expression. We were a people like a single organism, and we lived and died for the good of our race. As the judge served the people in dividing right from wrong and passing a sentence of death, so the prince was to serve his people by dying. For every trace of wrongdoing must be killed from our midst. Do you not see? I weep for my people now, and the way that they might have had their own prince, had he been perfect enough. The rest is a lot of tears. We did part affectionately. He told me his story. I weep still. I remember a little more. I have the sense that somehow we lost our vitality from that day onwards and we never found another prince among us. It may be that my people lived and died between two tides.